Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. The Catholic Church is the United States' second-largest religious grouping after Protestantism and the country's largest church or religious denomination. As of 2018, 23% of Americans are Catholic. This is startling when you realize that at the beginning of the American experiment in self-government, religions and their adherents were almost completely Protestant and vehemently and even violently, sometimes, anti-Catholic. The story of this transformation is critical to understanding the American religious landscape, which is another way of saying it is critical to understanding America, and often the best way to understand a historical movement or an event is to learn about individual actors on history's stage. Importantly, as historian Anne Brody of Harvard Divinity School wrote, women's history is American religious history. One prominent female Catholic in American history is Elizabeth Ann Seton, who began the Sisters of Charity, the first religious community of women founded in the United States, and who was the aunt of Seton Hall University's founder, Bishop James Roosevelt Bailey. Today, to help us understand the life and times of Elizabeth Ann Seton in our quest to comprehend America is Catherine O'Donnell, professor of history at Arizona State University and author of Elizabeth Seton, American Saint, which was awarded the Distinguished Book Award by the Conference on the History of Women Religious, as well as the Biography Prize from the Catholic Press Association. Her primary research interests include early American history, culture, and religion. She is also the author of Men of Letters in the Early Republic and many articles appearing in venues including the William & Mary Quarterly, the Journal of the Early Republic, Early American Literature, and the U.S. Catholic Historian. She teaches undergraduate and graduate courses on early American history and the Atlantic world. It is hoped that our time together today will help us better understand what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, and we trust that as a result, listeners will come to better understand how revolutionary and indispensable the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle is to the United States and its future. Join us in building the National Museum of American Religion in the nation's capital to open in 2026 on the 240th anniversary of Thomas Jefferson's immortal words, Almighty God hath created the mind free, by donating at storyofamericanreligion.org forward slash contribute. Catherine, after that lengthy monologue, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. First, uh, Catherine, 
Tell us how you became interested in Elizabeth Ann Seton. I think there were two paths to that. So I did I did grow up Catholic. I always loved the stories of the saints. Um, but I liked the medieval ones, you know, the ones that smelled like roses after they died, this sort of thing. Um, and it was when I was actually teaching um, uh, university, this was at William and Mary, and I was teaching a course on early American biography, and I let students choose their person. And I was teaching in Virginia, so, you know, there were five James Madisons and <laughs> Jeffersons, and one young woman said she wanted to write about Mother Seton. And I just thought, wait a minute, she's filed in my head with the Catholic saints, not with early American history, but of course she was both. And I was startled to discover there was not a lot of modern scholarship on her. And that's uh, where the journey began. Okay, fair enough. Now, Catherine, for our listeners, uh, many of whom are not Catholic, um, why should understanding Elizabeth Seton be of interest to them? Or stated differently, why would it make them better citizens of the United States to learn about the life and times of Elizabeth Ann Seton? Interesting. Um, so I confess that I think that learning about anyone deeply is a good step toward being a better citizen um, in that it helps to build community to understand other people's perspectives and experiences. Seen in particular, I would make two kind of maybe almost competing claims for her. So first, she was an adventurer. <laughs> she was willing to change her mind, to try new things, to irritate people that she knew by um, thinking very differently from them. And that's kind of admirable and necessary. At the same time, she took very seriously the need to live in harmony with others, and she constantly thought about how to reconcile her single-minded pursuit of truth with her really sincere wish to be compassionate and gentle with other people. <laughs> so if we could kind of do both of those things, I feel that that would be useful as citizens. Sure. No, that's a, that's a, great, that's a great answer. Now, a final question to frame our discussion before we get into the nitty-gritty. You write that during the last half of the 18th century, quote, the rhetoric and pageantry of New York's anti-popery or anti-Catholicism outstripped true persecution. Um, Catherine, can you describe for us the religious and religious freedom landscapes of New York City during this time, which I think is essential for us to understand Elizabeth Seton? I agree. It is essential. So New York has this fascinating history. It's first a Dutch colony and the Dutch Reformed Church is in power. Then it's an English colony and Anglicanism, what would become Episcopalianism is powerful. Um, and, and Anglicanism was officially the established religion during Seton's childhood, um, early childhood and just before. But New York was always this sort of quilt um, and you very early begin to have Methodists and Baptists there um, as those denominations and evangelicalism begins to flourish. You have Quakers whom Seton admired when she was young because she liked their plain clothes. Um, you have Jews um, in New York City and a synagogue as well. Um, you have enslaved people who have brought African religions and, and syncretistic religions to New York. And you also have this 
kind of mix of um, vitriol, ill feeling, sometimes directed against Catholics as sort of soldiers of the Pope and disloyal people. Um, and a lot of tolerance because New Yorkers wanted to get along, they wanted to go along, and often it made more sense just not to ask questions. Um, right. So it's a really fascinating kind of stew of different religions and different approaches to religion. Okay, great. That, that's helpful. Now let's get to Elizabeth Seton herself. Uh, can you just give us a brief biographical sketch of her taking us from her birth in 1774 to when she set sail for Livorno, Italy at age 29 in 1803? Yes. She was born, as you hear from that date, right, as revolution creeps toward the colonies. And she's born in New York to a very ambitious um, doctor father who actually sails away to England to continue his medical education as the colonies are in peril. He does come back um, as a, essentially a medic in the British Army, um, but Seton's mother dies during the revolution, uh, shortly after giving birth to the couple's third child. And Seton um, grows up in a family and a city that is recovering from this terrible war. Her father remarries, but Elizabeth's stepmother is cold and awkward. Um, her father has to sort of wangle his way back in because he was a loyalist to um, the city's good graces. She's conscious of all of this. She's intellectually ambitious, not particularly interested in organized Christianity, um, but she did enjoy nature and kind of clearly felt a craving for divine presence. She felt that more on her own than through um, than through services. And her, her family was Episcopal. She had no connection with Catholicism at this point. Okay. So she thinks of herself as melancholy. It's clear she was kind of a beauty, kind of a flirt. <laughs> and she attracts uh, her husband, uh, William McGee Seton, who's a tall, handsome, transatlantic merchant, six or seven years older than she is. And they marry, and she's just thrilled from her letters. It's clear that after this kind of unsettled, somewhat unhappy childhood, she has a husband she loves. She begins bearing children. She eventually has five children. Um, but her husband is coughing and weakening. And it turns out he has tuberculosis, consumption, they would have called it. At the same time, the family's merchant business is at risk because of the Napoleonic Wars and her husband's not the best businessman. Um, so Seton then is faced with a frail, truly frail husband and a husband who has gone bankrupt. She's recently given birth to her fifth child. And the question is what to do. And what they come up with is this kind of cockamamie plan um, to go to Italy where William has business associates. And the hope is that those associates, the Felici family, will help William build his business back and the lovely Italian climate will somehow save him from tuberculosis. Okay. And so they set sail. By the way, I also found it interesting that they were protected by the nation's first bankruptcy law because if that ha because otherwise 
the horrible debtor's prison loomed, yeah. right? And that created great stress, I think. That, that's what I read, correct? That that was a real stress. Absolutely. I, I thought that detail might be too sort of historian nerdy, but it's important. Right. So um, uh, prior to the bankruptcy law, um, you could be put in debtor's prison until you could pay off your your creditors as if being in debt was criminal, right? In a way that seems very foreign to us. And William, Elizabeth's husband, had seen this happen to people close to him throughout his life, and he was terrified of it. Um, and it was just really in the months before he used this bankruptcy law that the, the first law was passed. And it did mean they weren't spared humiliation, right? They were not spared um, financial risk, but they were spared his imprisonment. Uh, you write that during this time period you just described, uh, quote, Amid calamities, large and small, Elizabeth drained her mind of words and, and images until she felt only God, close quote. What is going on here with Elizabeth and her religious views? Yeah. So as I mentioned, she had always wanted a, to feel close to God, but had not found a church that spoke to her, really. Um, and so, including when she was a young mother, she would read sermons, she would read the Bible, she would walk in nature. Um, as she began to be more and more fearful for her husband and her family, she did turn more toward a communal religion, right, to shared religion rather than just individual and there's a minister, an Episcopal minister at Trinity Church, John Henry Hobart, who became a kind of spiritual guide. But it was still the case, and it's clear in that passage, that specific doctrine is not what is moving her, right? It's a kind of imminence. It's um, just a, a sense of closeness to 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 God, that in some sense, pe some people who read these passages feel it feels more Eastern than Western. But but there, there's also this tradition of of prayer with within Christianity, right. um, and and that is what she found solace in, and what began to make Christianity and worship really central to her life so that it wasn't just that Christianity created an ethical person, which she also found important. It was that the worship itself was sustaining to her. Okay. And, and she also uh, believed um, at this time, you write, quote, her, she considered her choice of religion a matter of taste, not virtue, close quote, and you also quote her as saying, I think the first point of religion is cheerfulness and harmony. How does that fit into to, uh, your understanding of Elizabeth's religious persona at that time before she set sail? Yeah, I love how you're specifying at that time too, right? Because this is something that changes throughout her right. life in a really fascinating way. So um, religion was like cuisine or like fashion, right? It came in different forms and people enjoyed different variants of it. And that was, that was fine, right? One can get one's calories from curry, from beef stew, and one is still getting the job done. Uh, that's kind of how she thought about religion um, throughout her young life. 
when she became more interested in Episcopalianism, Hobart, this minister, did begin to get her thinking that the Episcopal communion had some kind of distinctive claim, perhaps, um, some particular relationship back to um, Christ's apostles. Uh, but that was sort of just an overlay over what we would call a ecumenicism, right? Or just a sense that the, the differences among the denominations were not so Im- important. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Good. Um, now, she's going to set sail with her husband and one of her children on the shepherdess to Italy. Uh, and when she does that, uh, as you describe it, Elizabeth was, quote, trying to strike an ambitious bargain. She would give up everything else if God allowed her the only thing she truly wanted, her family's reunion after death, close quote. What does this, this is a very deep sentiment, What? what, what and, and very, um, very, very religious in its own right, uh, not attached to a particular church or, or faith. What does this represent in her life story? Yeah. So she she had become more and more drawn to to the idea sort of summed up in scripture, this world is not my home, <laughs> that this is a, a temporary passage. And her life had been marked by loss. As I mentioned, the, the death of her mother and of her infant sister was really her first memory. Um, she fears the death of her husband, her children, because this is the 18th century, you know, she'd seen her children ill and not known whether they would survive. Um, And so she's accepted that she can't control what happens in this world. Um, What she wants is a reunion after death, right? And some kind of non-doctrinal Christian afterlife. And she will do anything. There is um, no uh, possession, no ambition that she holds um, that she places above that hope of reunion in in a Christian afterlife. And it goes beyond lip service, right? I mean, she does sort of sail through this bankruptcy and this calamity without really being that upset uh, that she has to write down every single possession that her family owns and hand the list over to, to people, right? She she really has begun to, to set aside the things of this world um, in her hope for a future, but there is an element of barter here, right? She she wants something from, from this God that she believes in so passionately and what she wants is her family safety after death. Okay. So, um, they arrive in Italy, uh, several, uh, things happen, uh, which are quite uh, intense. Um, tell us what happened to her in Italy. Give us a, a brief sketch of, of sort of her trip there. What happened, uh, and then what happened religiously? 
Yeah, there's so much drama in her, in her life. There is a lot of drama. So uh, her, her father had actually died as a doctor serving ill people in New York. Then she gets to Italy with her ill husband, and there is really no such doctor to help them. Um, and her husband dies shortly after this little group, Elizabeth, her husband, and her oldest daughter, are released from a cold, damp quarantine um, so there she is. The, the plan has failed, right? Uh, William actually dies dreaming that he's won the lottery, but he has not. He's still bankrupt. Um, and she's a widow. She's an impoverished widow now in Italy with her, with her oldest daughter. And she's got these sermons that her Episcopal minister has sent with her. And the family that she's staying with, the Feliki, have always thought of the United States as maybe a home for Catholicism, um, which they see as endangered by Napoleonic Europe. Um, and they think it's providential, it's God's grace that this pious widow has landed um, in their home. And they immediately kind of unabashedly begin to try to convert her to Catholicism. And I'm laughing because Elizabeth Seton laughed. She like, she could not believe um, uh, that they were doing this. Um, and she wrote, you know, oh, these charitable Romans, they, they didn't waste a minute. Um, and she's polite and she reverts to this ecumenicism that she's always held, right? They're Catholic, I'm Protestant, everybody's doing their best. I'm a kind of a good New Yorker. I'll, I'll be a tourist. I'll go around. I'll see what these people do. But, but she expected it to be almost like visiting a museum. You know what I mean? Watching somebody else's festival. Um, and she found herself moved uh, by Catholic masses, by this beautiful art that Fleeky kind of cheated. And they took her to Florence. So she saw this beautiful Catholic art. Um, she's very moved by the figure of the Virgin Mary, which was not at all prominent in the Protestantism that she knew, but which is prominent in Italian Catholic devotion. And little by little, she becomes aware that this is not a religion she's watching. This is a religion that speaks speaks to her in its beauty, in in the Catholic teaching that Christ is present in the Eucharist, right? Which gave her the sense of presence that she'd always wanted. Um, and she's amazed. She kind of doesn't know what to do with that um, at first and resists. She knows this will not go over well at home, but she does uh, decide to convert to Catholicism while in Italy. Right. Uh... And, and you mentioned this briefly, but I'm going to ask you to elaborate a little bit more. Uh, the Felicis uh, and some, and I, I think Bishop Carroll in, in Baltimore, because of correspondence perhaps, they all felt like, quote, God had given Filippo Felici the chance to plant Catholicism in the United States, close quote. Does this have gr significant ramifications? That's a, that's a wonderful question, and that is a part of her life or a part of the book that people read very differently. Um, so there are uh, some who see this as Filippo did, right, in Antonio, these Italian brothers, um, as a, a moment in which kind of human intention were less, was less important 
um, than divine intention. And there Elizabeth was, and she was there for a divine reason. You know, as a as an historian, I I follow the earthly evidence. Um, and it's it's clear that so Filippo had earlier traveled to the United States. He'd written to the Pope suggesting that this freedom of religion in the U.S., this is not actually dangerous to Catholicism. Um, this is good. We can work with this. Uh, so he had a very kind of forward looking view. Um, and certainly, I think without this family actively exposing her to Catholic writing, taking her to mass, it's unlikely that Seton would have taken it upon herself to experience religion in this way. Um, that said, she also was a woman not to be trifled with. And in fact, if Filippo had understood her a little bit better, he might not have dared to try. It was almost his ignorance that made this work um, because he thought she was malleable. Well, she was not malleable. She was polite. Um, and she was determined to make her own decision uh, about whether this religion spoke to her. Um, and in fact, it, it did. It, 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 it touched her. It moved her. It gave her the sense of divine presence. It was as if kind of heaven reached down to earth as she saw it. And there, there is a way in which there's a certain amount of eat, pray, love here. I always think like, this is a tourist and you go to somewhere else and you think, oh, these happy, these happy people, right? They, they've got it all figured out. We, we, tourists can feel this, right? You go somewhere else and everything seems simpler and the colors seem brighter. And in fact, Northern Italy during this period is incredibly complicated. There's religious diversity, but what she saw was a sort of unified Catholic belief and beauty um, that she wanted to live within. So she'd always lived amongst choices in New York. And here she saw unity and that's what she wanted. Okay. So once when she gets back to New York City, she does leave her Episcopal faith and, and join St. Peter's Catholic Church in New York. Um, and I like how you wrote about it, uh, that she... Uh, light quote the Church of Saint Peter with a cross on the top instead of a weathercock close quote. Um, she seemed most convinced of Catholicism being the true way because of her singular experience with the Eucharist. You mentioned that briefly. Can you explain that it's what it did to her exactly and why that was such a powerful and almost a singular reason it seemed that she. Yeah. came to the Catholic Church. Yeah, so as she understood and was taught Episcopal teachings, the communion in her Episcopal church was an honoring of the Last Supper, right? It, it, it referred to the Last Supper. It was an act of communion amongst the congregation. Um, but Catholic teaching offered her something else, and that was that Christ was in a real way present in this bread or this wafer that she's going to consume. Um, and her minister, her former minister, as were many Protestants, were apoplectic at this, right? Like to them, this was the heart of 
Catholic absurdity and barbarism. And they were just very straightforward about, so there's hundreds of thousands of little Christs and you're crunching into them when you eat the bread. I mean, it's, it's, it's completely uh, disrespectful, I suppose, if one believes, right? But they're just sort of trying to jar her out of believing this. It's fantasy for them. It's little green men. Um, to her, she, she, she comes to the view that, well, you believe in all these other miracles, right? How much of life do you actually understand? Um, why is it that this one part of faith you decide to be completely rational about and disdainful of? Um, to her, it's the greatest gift because since childhood, what she has wanted, like craved, is a feeling that she is near God and God is near her. And so to be told that in communion, she's she's one, right? She's consuming divinity in a, in a real way is just so fulfilling and gorgeous to her. Um, and this is something we see throughout Catholic history and interestingly, often with women, um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a thread through the history of, of female saints in particular. Um, and Seton takes her part in that, in that tradition and just the joy she feels throughout her life. I mean, her communion is the last meal she will have right before she dies. Um, that, that never leaves her this, this deep satisfaction in taking Catholic communion. Okay, thank you. We are talking with Catherine O'Donnell, professor of history at Arizona State University and author of Elizabeth Seton, American Saint, as part of Religion in the American Experience, a podcast series of the National Museum of American Religion, which tells the profound story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, which includes the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle. Join us in building the National Museum of American Religion in the nation's capital to open in 2026 on the 240th anniversary of Thomas Jefferson's immortal words, Almighty God hath created the mind free by donating at storyofamericanreligion.org forward slash contribute. Catherine, we read of two interesting things during Elizabeth's Catholic time in New York. One, that her Catholic priest wanted to get rid of New York's requirement for office holders to forswear allegiance to foreign powers, including ecclesiastical ones, and a sexual abuse scandal. Can you talk a little bit about these two events and how Elizabeth fits into them? Yeah. Um, so the first um, is an effort to rid the new United States of this legacy of formal anti-Catholicism that was part of the English tradition. And um, the, the rule that you, you had to forswear allegiance to the Pope is a holdover from the idea that Catholics could not be good British subjects and then could not be American citizens because their loyalties lay in Rome. Um, and so the effort to get rid of that was an effort to defend Catholic liberty, but it was also part of this larger decision that religion 
could be private, right? That Americans could have relationships through business, through politics, through walking down the street together. And the God that they believed in, the way that they worshiped would not interfere with those relationships. So that's an incredibly important idea in American history. And you see it flowering at this period. At this moment in her life, Seton has doubts about it, I have to say, because she's just risked everything to convert. She's converted because she thinks that Catholicism is a uniquely safe and sure path toward this afterlife that she wants for herself and for everyone. And she's honestly kind of thinking like, I don't know, this is not a dinner party. Um, should I be polite and keep things to myself? What, what if doing that um, prevents others from finding this important truth? So she will change her mind again about this. But at this point, she wants to proselytize or convince others of this truth that she thinks she's found. So that's the first piece. The second piece is part of this long of tragic story of the Catholic Church and sexual abuse, um, which, as we know, is an issue, is still an issue, still being uncovered. Um, and you see it uh, comes out in documents early in the church. And in this, in in these early days, it tends to be a priest um, in a relationship with uh, a woman, usually an adult woman, and. Um, what's happened in New York here is that it looks as if a priest had um, approached inappropriately a young Irish woman. Um, and interestingly, another priest in the parish was outraged by this um, and helped the young woman bring it to the attention of Bishop Carroll, who was then the nation's only bishop. Um, and Bishop Carroll actually takes it seriously. Um, it's a dark story. The brighter thread in it is the efforts, awkward though they were, of these clergy to respond. In the end, some of these priests are removed uh, from their, their, their duties. Um, and Seton uh, clearly knows about this. Um, her response is not to involve herself at all, but it's clear that the Catholicism she understands herself to join is a, is a broader world than this little um, tangled parish in New York. So she's reading Thomas Akempis, she's reading Aquinas, she's seeking guidance from clergy in Boston and, and elsewhere, I think trying to um, draw on the, the deeper and more sincere parts of the Catholic Church and separate herself a bit uh, from this um, troubled parish. Right. Okay. Um, after finally leaving New York, so Elizabeth does and her family does leave New York and they first go to Baltimore uh, and then they go on to found the Sisters of Charity in, in Emmitsburg, Maryland, where, as you movingly write, quote, the landscape felt sacred. For these Catholic women, as for evangelical Protestants gathering for revivals in fields and clearings across the new nation, 
God filled the raw American air, close quote. Can you tell us briefly the story of, of, of her from New York to Emmitsburg and what she founded? Yeah, she um, she is impatient with New York. She wants to live a more fully devotional life. And as you as you note, some of these priests, many of whom were refugees from the French Revolution and who kind of like these Italians I was talking about, saw the United States as a place where a different kind of Catholicism could thrive. They see her as a respectable face for this church that a lot of Americans mistrust. He first is brought to Baltimore. She's a school teacher there. It's okay, but she has bigger dreams. The priests have bigger dreams for her. And uh, she is able to found, uh, with their help, uh, this sisterhood in Emmitsburg near the Blue Ridge Mountains, um, which is gorgeous, which remains gorgeous. Um, it's just shockingly lovely part of the country. Um and she had always throughout her life kind of felt God in nature. Um, and she does there. Um, and that, as well as her desire for intense religious experience and her willing to experiment, actually makes her a companion of a lot of other Americans who were becoming Baptists and Methodists during this time, right? They're the doctrines they were choosing are, are quite different, and they might even have mistrusted each other's doctrines. But this desire for a more intense experience of religion and a willingness to, you know, upset your uncle <laughs> and uh, uh, and a, an eagerness to, to feel God in the air around you, all of that unites Seton's Catholicism with these other Protestant experiences. So, but the community she founds is very much within the Catholic, we might say monastic tradition or tradition of convents and monasteries and so forth. Um, the, the key piece of it is that it's not cloistered, right? The women, Seton and the women who quickly begin to join her don't have to stay inside and pray with their contribution being prayer. Um, they do pray. Uh, but their contribution is also taking care of others. And this is drawing on a French tradition of Daughters of Charity and Ursulines. And that's particularly useful in the United States because there are very few priests. The country is enormous. Um, and there are a lot of Catholics who have no contact um, with clergy, very little contact with clergy, children who will um, grow up what, what would have been called unchurched, um, without perhaps the help of these women, um, these sisters of charity who could tend to people's bodies and their minds and also bring the Catholic Church into people's lives in a way that clergy could not do. Okay. And so Elizabeth was the mother, capital M, there at Sisters of Charity, as well as Mother small, lowercase m, for her, for her children. And we'll get into some of that a little bit later. Um, I, I noted that, and, and, and we won't talk about this, but I did note that um, just as Elizabeth stayed away from the sexual abuse scandal and uh, that, that the, you write, she prepared girls to enter society, not upend it, close quote. So she, she, she did certain things, but she didn't do other things. 
something also you've you've mentioned was tuberculosis. Now, tuberculosis plagued Elizabeth and her family as it did society. And in fact, I don't think I've ever read a biography where sickness and death were so vividly and frequently described in great and moving detail um, as yours did, uh, Catherine. And I'm, I'm guessing this was also not uh, foreign to many Americans uh, at that time. I mean, sickness always stalked, and there was little uh, knowledge of how to prevent death. Um, but it was a profound experience to feel in some small way what they felt, and especially Elizabeth. Uh, I read when Anna died, um, you wrote uh, of a painful procedure that they suggested to her, uh, that was suggested to Anna, that would allow her to, and, and, and Anna thought of this, she, she decided to go along with it because, quote, it would pay my penance for so often drawing in my waist to look small and imitate the looks of my companions. Let the ribs now draw with pain for having drawn with vanity, close quote. So she was but dying and she knew it. Um, th- this, this is representative of what, uh, Catherine? Uh, for Anna, her sister Beck, who later dies as well, you know, heartrending. Um, what is this representative of, this approach to sickness and death that was all around Elizabeth and her family? Yeah. Um, there's there's a, a radical ac- acceptance of pain and loss um, throughout Seton's life. And it is the the challenge of her life, right? The the heroics of her life, the way a, a, a ship's captain's heroics come from the sea and storms and maybe battles, right? Th- this is where her, her story and its drama lies. And she originally, you know, had even tried to train herself to love people less um, in the hopes that it would hurt less when they died. Um, and she f- forced herself not to do that. She forced herself to love fully and yet to love with the acceptance that people might be taken away and might be taken away in these kind of brutal ways. I'll say sort of on a, I'm not sure this is appropriate, but on a personal level, like I'm a mother and it was not just painful to read about the loss of her children, but unsettling. It was unsettling to see the her acceptance of it. There's just a radical rejection of any claim on their earthly good that is is not anything I could could muster. It's something that I could only describe as an historian and marvel at as a as a human being. Um, it did, it did enable Elizabeth Seton to be enormously comforting to others who were experiencing grief. And as you know, this, this is everyone eventually, even now, and, and everyone often in times with, with less medical training. Um, and she, she would tell people there's, there's, there's no way to cure this. There's no way to speed this up. Um, you just live through it. It's a it's a season of life, um, and continuing to love the sufferer, the person who has died, and God, 
is the obligation that Seton felt and that she and that she she taught to others. But I don't know if your listeners see a video, but I'm just shaking my head even as I describe this because the the extent to which she accepts this, even as it is so painful, is really still unfathomable to me, even after spending, you know, 10 years uh, with this woman's papers. Did she did she and the sisters there believe that um, sickness, pain, and death were were um, were given to them because of something they did wrong? I saw some threads of that, but not not always. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty deep question. Um, I think it's clear that at some points in her life she did, and as with I think I used the word barter about her saying like I'll do anything if. God allows my family to be uh, to be saved. There's a there's a a tit for tat, uh, almost a transactional quality um, to some of her experience of religion that does eventually drop drop away. I, I, I think so that she becomes more content with. Um, the idea that God is unknowable in all but love. Um, And so that it is uh, inappropriate, just simply silly, (laughs) I guess, to to try to parse why something happened or certainly to try to offer something up in hopes of getting something back. Um, But I agree with you that there are definitely moments in which Seton or people around her, such as her daughters, um, seem to be thinking a specific piece of suffering might emerge from a a specific, um, a specific bad, bad deed. Um, But it's it's really a kind of fascinating subject. And the last last thing I'll say is a couple of her friends argue with her about this a little bit. A Protestant friend of hers, very interesting woman, Eliza Sadler, kind of pokes at her early on. And she's like, well, it would be kind of pretty to think that things had this specific meaning or you could pay for X by offering Y. But but I but I doubt you. And, And as I say, I think that Seton also moved away from that more transactional style of worship as she aged. Okay. Let's move on. Uh, we just have a few more minutes. I want to get to a few more uh, questions and then let you sort of have the, the last word. Uh, you once wrote in the book that, quote, Elizabeth hinted that she saw the sisterhood as some devout women whose service to God was less important than the clergy's. The priesthood was an embassy, the sisterhood an errand. She drew the contrast ruthlessly, close quote. Can you elaborate briefly on Elizabeth's uh, thoughts here? Yeah. Um, So to her, the priesthood was the greatest calling on earth, right? I mean, priests have the ability to turn um, the the Eucharist into the body of Christ, right? They have sacramental authority. Um, And she knew that she could not be a priest because she was a woman. And she also knew, and she makes this a little bit clear, she could be pretty prickly, um, that some men of dubious character (laughs) could be priests um, because their manhood allowed that. 
So she's a keen observer. And when a, a priest friend of hers, a collaborator, is kind of whining because he's not allowed to lead the heroic missionary life he wished he led, she sympathizes with him and she also pokes it at him a little bit and says, well, you can be a priest. Um, so she observes it. That said, she does not want to upend it, right? She understands the, the gendered architecture of the church as something that she needs to live within, as her inability to be a priest is another cross to bear, as there are many crosses to bear. Um, and in the end, she does clearly believe that priests as ambassadors, sisters as um, errand runners, they're both servants. And the distance between both the, the clergies and the sisters and divinity is, is so much more immense um, than the difference between sisters and clergy that, again, she's, she is content with it. She's, she's serene about it, but she is a careful um, observer. Okay, thank you. Um, by the early 19th century, uh, you write that the Sisters of Charity were, quote, alive in the thoughts of Catholic church clergy throughout the United States, close quote. What was the influence of this organization? Yeah, and also moving forward, right, through the 19th century, um, they're, um, they're caring for children, they're founding schools, they're founding orphanages, which both cares for the vulnerable and also um, means in a public way, you don't have a lot of impoverished Catholic children running the streets, right? It, 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 it's both an act of mercy and something that enables Catholicism to become more accepted in the United States. Um, they, uh, the Sisters of Charity found communities everywhere, the Deep South, the Midwest, California, um, and they are absolutely essential to the fabric, the spiritual and the practical work of the Catholic Church throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Okay, thank you. I wanted to get that uh, from you before we, we end with a little bit more uh, of Elizabeth's uh, experience. Uh, the final death that we encounter in the book is Elizabeth's own uh, in 1821 at the age of 47, quite young. You describe Elizabeth's reaction to death's imminence in this way, quote, perhaps after so many years of being both mother, capital M, and mother, lowercase m, in her last moments, she could only be the first, close quote. What did you mean and how did Elizabeth view her death? Yeah. Um, so she had one surviving daughter at this point, her other two daughters had both died of consumption and her two sons were off trying to make their way in the world. Um, and Catherine, the surviving daughter is there, but Seton pays her no particular mind on her, on her deathbed. She has kind of transcended her blood family and is fully inhabiting her role as the mother to this sisterhood. And there's nothing cruel about it. She's She's been an extraordinarily devoted mother, but in these last moments of her life, it's 
it's her spirituality that is central. And it's also quite striking that someone who had originally tried to trade for heaven for everyone, who had um, in a way found her way into formal Christianity in the hopes of a nice cozy afterlife, by the end of her life, she envisions a heaven that is infinite time and unlandmarked space and absolutely unknowable. And she's just shed all of her preconceptions. She shed all of her earthly desires, even for particular attachments to these people she deeply loved. Um, and, and all she is waiting for <laughs> is, is union in whatever form it comes um, with, with God. Um, and it's extraordinarily moving even to read her writings from those last weeks or the writings of people that were near her. It's moving at the distance of 200 years. Um, so one can only imagine um, what what that little room was was like when when she died. Thank you. Uh, you write that, quote, no public notice condemned Elizabeth's faith. Uh, when she died, she was lauded by a culture that for the moment feared irreligion more than popery or Catholicism, close quote. Help us quickly understand the American religious landscape at the time of her death and her position in it. Yes. So um, Catholicism had been mistrusted. Catholicism will kind of be mistrusted again when you have the waves of Irish immigrants, my people, <laughs> coming in the 1840s, sort of re-sparked a lot of the animosity. Um, but at this point, early 19th century, um, Catholicism was accepted as a form of Christianity, which may seem obvious now, which absolutely had not been obvious um, through uh, much of uh, colonial and early national history. Um, and Seton and the, the other Sisters of Charity who were already running more than one school and more than one orphanage might have been considered by Protestants to be somewhat odd, right? Their, their dress would be striking, but they were seen as benevolent, pious women um, who were a boon to the community and to the nation. And that is the note that is struck um, in the notices of Seton's death. Okay, thank you. Catherine, as we conclude, do you want to share any lessons or takeaways from the book, either in terms of important historical transformations you charted or are charting, or in terms of helping us better understand our present moment in the American narrative? Um, interesting. So... I would say that this is a story about the, the early days of um, the First Amendment of religious liberty in the United States and the, the, the legal structures were in a sense in place, but the way people would live within those structures was very much being invented. So even if one has the right to choose religion and to 
abandon the religion of your father and your mother and to choose your own, that doesn't mean you know how to do it without breaking your mother's heart. <laughs> that doesn't mean you know how to do it without angering your neighbor. Um, and I think watching Elizabeth Seton and the people around her figure out how to live fully within this liberty that they enjoyed is extraordinarily moving. And to see her change her mind, so to go from wanting to proselytize or convince people of what she believed at the time of her conversion to later in her life being quite adamant that she would live out her faith but others would make their own decisions and she would not try to persuade anyone of anything um, is, is really quite moving. Um, and I think perhaps instructive as people still believe things very deeply um, and yet still want to live gently uh, among people who disagree profoundly. Um, and then the last thing I would say is that Seton's is an ethos of connection, always connect. So she saw people very specifically. She tried to understand what each student would respond to, 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 to listen to people and to be critical or supportive or humorous as that person seemed to need in that moment. Um, and so that kind of attention and love as a skill, right, that you can develop, not as like an emotion that you just let wash over you, is, I think, enormously instructive. And this may seem a little bit touchy-feely, but, but I think it can also be a civic virtue, right, to, to see other citizens clearly, to listen carefully, um, to be specific in our relationships, to avoid characters, caricatures, to connect rather than separate. That I think is 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 just always useful, and uh, per, perhaps at this moment um, more more useful than ever. Okay, thank you. Very very helpful. We have been talking with Catherine O'Donnell, professor of history at Arizona State University and author of Elizabeth Seton, American Saint, as part of Religion in the American Experience, a podcast series of the National Museum of American Religion, which is dedicated to telling the profound story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion. We trust that as a result, listeners will see how revolutionary and indispensable the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle is to the United States and its future. Please join us in building the National Museum of American Religion in the nation's capital to open in 2026 on the 240th anniversary of Thomas Jefferson's immortal words, Almighty God hath created the mind free, by donating at storyofamericanreligion.org forward slash contribute. Catherine, thank you for being with us today and doing the really hard work of writing, researching, and writing a book it helps us all understand America a little bit better. It's been super enlightening for me, and I hope our listeners, and I hope you've enjoyed the time with us as well. Thank you so much for having me. I did enjoy it. 
The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.